In the most consequential election of modern times, if not the entire history of the American Republic, a little over half of eligible people voted in the 2016 presidential election, or the equivalent of 54.7% of the eligible voting age population. Hillary Clinton received a majority of the popular vote with almost 65 million votes, compared to Donald Trump, who received only 62 million votes. When Barack Obama was elected to his first term in 2008, the percentage was only slightly better, at 56.9%. Since losing the election, Hillary has been repeatedly criticized for not campaigning more aggressively in the Midwest and speaking to white middle-class men who ended up voting for Trump. It's stunning that several months into Donald Trump's presidency, this strategic failure continues to be discussed and according to what seems like a majority of pundits, remains the central reason for her loss. If I lost a presidential election, in a country of 325 million people, where less than 100,000 votes in a handful of states determine the outcome, I wouldn't be asking myself why I didn't win over some of the people who voted for my opponent. I'd be asking, why wasn't I able to get any of the 45.3% of the voting age population who stayed home on election day? This problem of low voter turnout has characterized American elections for decades. You're listening to Predicting Our Future. I'm Andrew Weinrich. This podcast explores industries that might be ripe for massive disruption, as well as some of the most exciting opportunities for entrepreneurs to consider. This is the first episode in a three-part series examining online voting and whether we can expect to see voting over the internet in future American elections. In this episode, I'll talk about why voting in America is fundamentally broken and whether online voting can help fix it. This podcast is brought to you by SaneBox. If your email is anything like mine, you have more emails than you can read. I recently learned about a company that takes out the manual organizing of your inbox. It's called SaneBox. SaneBox sorts through your email and moves all the trivial stuff into a different folder. So the only messages in your inbox are the ones you actually want to see. They also have this feature called the black hole where you can relegate a sender's messages to obscurity. Here's a deal they're offering to my listeners. Visit SaneBox.com forward slash future. That's S-A-N-E-B-O-X dot com forward slash future. And they'll throw in an extra $25 credit on top of their two-week free trial. When I began research for this podcast, it seemed obvious to me that if we already bank from our phones and paid taxes online, surely one day we would be able to vote over the internet. We know that with online banking and online dating, the frequency of interactions people have with their bank or the number of dates they go on has exploded. Isn't it logical to expect that if voting were conducted online, we'd see a similar increase in participation? Now, I must say, as we wrapped up the interviews for this podcast, it dawned on me that my timing, in one sense, could not possibly have been worse. We are a little more than four months into this new administration of Donald Trump. Not a day goes by where there isn't a front-page story on Russian hacking of the 2016 election, where hacking refers to theft of emails from the Democratic National Committee, and in a broader sense, the distribution of those emails and fake news. This hacking episode leaves us with this feeling of total vulnerability, namely that everything electronic is subject to manipulation. To make matters worse, in May 2017, the world experienced one of the worst malware attacks, with hackers taking over hundreds of thousands of computers 
and threatening to delete data unless a ransom payment is made. You'd have to be tone deaf or completely ignorant of all this news to then launch a podcast on online voting. Perhaps one where you will eventually come out and argue in favor of online voting and not at the very least acknowledge these hacking instances that have come to dominate the news. After conducting the interviews, I thought about tabling this podcast on online voting for another time, but I decided against it. Why? Because I also believe there is a crisis of confidence in how our elections work in the United States, and I wanted to explore whether online voting offered the promise of fixing our voting problems. So why am I looking at the online voting space? I really got here by way of indirection. This is the second presidential election in my lifetime where I've witnessed the winner of the popular vote in 2000 Al Gore and in 2016 now Hillary Clinton not win the presidency because they lost the electoral college. Donald Trump squarely won this last US presidential election according to the rules by which our elections are conducted. But does his election reflect the will of the voters? Not really. How would Ronald Reagan view our most recent elections in the context of his vision of America as a shining city on a hill? He was describing this country as a role model for other countries to emulate, including the hallmark of any democracy, namely its democratic institutions. But if a participatory democracy is measured by one person, one vote, where each vote is equal in importance or weight to every other vote, then we don't really have a participatory democracy and certainly not a system of voting that is worthy of emulation. Worse still, the impact of the Electoral College on the nation's collective voting psyche seems to be worsening. I had a chance to speak with David Dill, Donald Knuth Professor in the School of Engineering and Professor of Computer Science at Stanford University. He seemed to suggest that the more Americans who experience presidential elections where the winner of the popular vote doesn't become president, the worse this problem gets of people throwing up their hands when it comes time to vote. One of my personal theories is that in a state like California, where you have, uh, uh, if you're a Democrat, well, uh, your vote basically doesn't count for president because of the Electoral College. We know the state's going to vote for a Democratic president, and that's it. And so I vote out of a sense of duty for president, but I know it's not going to affect the outcome of the, the race. So I think that probably discourages voter participation as well. I understand the desire to increase voter participation, and I think what we need is a serious inquiry as to why voters are not participating, and then we need to diagnose the problem and have solutions that are based on methods that are actually shown to increase voter participation. The American Electoral College comes from Article 2 of the Constitution, which provides that each state shall elect a number of electors equal to the number of congressmen and senators from that state. We have a total of 538 electoral votes, 438 congressmen, that includes three now from the District of Columbia, plus 100 senators. It's difficult to identify any redemptive aspect of the system today. The voting by electors, and not by the general populace, was designed as a safeguard to prevent an unqualified individual from taking the highest office in the nation. In the near term, I'm ruling out the possibility of abolishing the Electoral College, because the Electoral College is a construct derived directly from the Constitution. Its abolishment would require an amendment to the Constitution, and amending the Constitution is hard. 
In order to pass a constitutional amendment, you need to have a bill passed by two-thirds of the members of the House of Representatives and two-thirds of the Senate, in addition to being ratified by three-fourths of the state legislatures. To give you an idea how difficult it is to pass an amendment, the last amendment to the Constitution was passed in 1992. It required that any changes that Congress voted on to amend their own pay would not take effect until after the next election for members of Congress. When was this amendment first proposed? On September 25, 1789. The last amendment that passed before this was the 26th Amendment in 1971, which lowered the voting age to 18. Suffice it to say, it's really hard to pass new amendments. There is one creative solution being implemented by some states that would have the effect of completely eliminating the power of the Electoral College without actually abolishing the Electoral College. The formulation for this state legislation comes from John Koza, a former professor at Stanford and a computer scientist who drafted the original National Popular Vote Interstate Compact. Over the years, I was sort of followed the Electoral College and all of the strange things uh, that happened, the near misses, uh, and of course the uh, 2000 election. And I also became aware of the fact that presidential campaigns were totally concentrated in a handful of battleground states so that the vast majority of Americans were left out of the presidential campaign. And those two thoughts came together with the idea that uh, the states, since they have the exclusive control over the presidential elections, could change from our current winner-take-all system, which is what allows second-place candidates to become president and which causes three-quarters of the states to be ignored, that this winner-take-all rule could be repealed by the state legislatures and replaced by a national popular vote for president. So can you explain mechanically what you envisioned and what this compact entails? Well, the states have exclusive power to award their electoral votes under the Constitution. And our compact is just the state law that repeals the existing winner-take-all law and says that, uh, for example, California, which is one of the states that's passed it, California would give its 55 electoral votes to the presidential candidate who gets the most popular votes in all 50 states. And similarly, there's 10 other states that have passed the identical law, Vermont, Hawaii, Rhode Island, uh, and so forth. Those states together currently have 165 electoral votes. And when we get enough states that have 270 electoral votes, which is a majority, which is enough to elect the president, then our law takes effect. And at that point, whoever gets the most popular votes in all 50 states will be guaranteed enough electoral votes to become president. In other words, if this law came into effect in California, and in a presidential election, 90% of Californians voted for the Democratic candidate, but a majority of Americans voted for the Republican candidate, then California would award 100% of its electoral votes to the Republican candidate. I wondered whether such a pact would be constitutional. The Supreme Court has ruled that the uh, power to decide how to award electoral votes is an exclusive state power. Most of the opponents of a national popular vote concede our bill is constitutional. Um, as to the question of whether Congress has oversight, 
1893, uh, the Supreme Court has held that interstate compacts do not require congressional consent unless they threaten federal supremacy. So based on current court precedents, uh, this compact does not require congressional consent. To date, only 11 states have passed legislation supporting the pact. And when you add up all of their votes, they don't represent a majority of electoral votes. So the legislation has not become effective anywhere. Not surprisingly, they are all states that consistently vote for Democrats for president. Maryland, New Jersey, Illinois, Hawaii, Washington, Massachusetts, the District of Columbia, Vermont, California, Rhode Island, and New York. While John said that he didn't believe people saw his legislation as partisan, it's easy to see why traditionally red-leaning states would not be behind such a solution when they benefit most from the Electoral College. So what are the other options to defeat the Electoral College and introduce a form of a participatory democracy where the popular vote will more likely correlate with the electoral vote? The efforts that seem to offer the greatest promise for change center around increasing voter turnout. Advocates working for increasing voter turnout recognize that there is nothing inherent in more people voting that guarantees that the winner of the presidential election will always reflect the expression of the national will. But they do believe, as do I, that increasing voter turnout will, one, diminish the likelihood that the outcome of the popular vote diverges from the electoral vote, and two, that over a much longer period of time, greater voter participation increases the likelihood that a national consensus might form around eliminating the Electoral College, whether through an amendment or other creative legislation, for example, the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact that we just talked about. The hypothesis here is that the demographic groups that have been least likely to vote, minorities and young people, tend to favor Democrats. Therefore, if a higher overall percentage of people voted, the differential in the popular vote would likely favor the Democrats further, thereby increasing the likelihood that eventual electoral results would correlate with the wider margins in the popular vote. The U.S. Census Bureau publishes statistics on voter participation by ethnicity. While I haven't seen them published for 2016 yet, here are the results from 2012. 61.8% of non-Hispanic whites who were eligible to vote, voted. In the same year, only 43.1% of eligible Hispanics voted. For other ethnicities, excluding Hispanics and African Americans, the percentage of eligible voters who voted was 45.4%. Young people were even more dramatically under-indexed compared to the national average of voters. In 2012, 40.9% of eligible voters between the ages of 18 and 29 voted. For eligible voters over the age of 60 in that same year, 71.2% of them voted. We know that minorities and young people disproportionately favor the Democratic Party. So if we ever had 100% participation, the groups that would stand to increase their participation the most were the ones that participated the least and this would disproportionately benefit the Democrats. Now let's dive into the real meat of this podcast episode. If America is dealing with a long-term decline in voter turnout, in part because people don't believe their votes count, what I want to know is, what are the best available options to make people believe their votes count and increase voter turnout? If people could be convinced that greater turnout would be the equivalent of defeating the Electoral College, 
Isn't it logical for activists to turn their attention to driving greater turnout? So if you follow my thinking here, I'll set about to consider ways to drive up voter turnout. Let's talk about the most obvious solution first, pass laws requiring people to vote. Of the 35 countries in the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, also known as the OECD, the United States was recently ranked 31st in terms of voter participation. The top two countries in the OECD are Belgium and Turkey. Both have voting participation levels in excess of 85%. Not coincidentally, both countries require by law that everyone votes. Thad Hall works at Fors Marsh Group, a research consultancy of social scientists, and has focused most of his career on public policy research, including extensive writings on election administration and policy implementation. I spoke with him about whether requiring people to vote is a good idea. One of the beauties of living in a democracy is that you can, your, one of your civic obligations can be to not participate. And so I do think in general, participation is, is a better thing but for some people, they don't want to participate. So these, it's a country, Argentina or other countries where it's obligatory to vote, you would not be in favor of that in the United States? Not in general, no. I think that people should be able to opt out. It's part of our freedoms to participate or not participate. But in general, I think it should be very easy to participate. I think Thad believed that if every country that currently has mandatory voting laws did away with such legislation, Many would still perform favorably compared to the United States in terms of turnout because of a much deeper cultural problem that we experience here in the United States. A number of people I spoke with for this podcast have pointed to the tendency of Americans to be less likely to appreciate the civic importance of participating in elections. One of the things to keep in mind about elections is there's two components of, of it. Uh, one component is the administration of elections. So the things that election officials and policymakers do to make it easier or harder to vote. And this is where something like internet voting would come into play, uh, how you, and also how you register to vote. Uh, but the other side of it is how candidates and political parties motivate people to vote. And that's the big thing that drives turnout is this motivational factor of um, parties and interest groups motivating people to be uh, interested in certain issues and uh, having to, an interest in talking about politics, which then spurs people to participate more. Considering legislation to require voting is something of an academic exercise because it's not likely to happen in the United States. Let's consider another obvious legislative change to voting that will also likely never happen, but would substantially increase voter turnout eliminate Tuesday voting, and hold American elections over a weekend. We have our presidential election on the first Tuesday in November, which stems from a law passed by Congress in 1845. Back when the United States was largely an agrarian society and relied on horses for travel, Congress wanted to make sure that farmers had enough time to travel to polling stations and that election day didn't fall on Sunday or Wednesday, the latter of which was market day. Dan Wallach is a professor in the Departments of Computer Science and Electrical and Computer Engineering and a Rice Scholar at the Baker Institute for Public Policy at Rice University. I had a wide-ranging discussion with him on how to increase voter turnout, an area he has studied extensively. If your goal is to increase turnout, then you can increase turnout in a variety of ways, such as getting rid of Tuesday as the voting day 
or mandating a two-week early voting period or making voting mandatory as a, as a you know, you're a U.S. citizen, you have to vote, period. You can do a lot of things if your goal is to increase turnout. Now we've gone through the obvious ideas to increase voter turnout that aren't likely to happen, and still we're confronted with the same quandary. More people would vote if they thought their vote mattered, but we can't change how people feel about voting unless we change the laws affecting how votes are counted, for example, eliminating the Electoral College. And we aren't likely to get rid of the Electoral College anytime soon, so now we're back to trying to figure out how to get more people to vote. As a technologist, I'm always wondering whether there's a way to solve problems with technology. And that is what brought me to this topic of internet voting. When I began the research for this podcast, I would have thought a few things were obvious to everyone. First, I assumed that if everyone could vote from their homes directly using their computers, that more people would vote. And second, if we ever got to a place where people could vote from their smartphones, well, surely then everyone would vote. I didn't think I would need to take time to defend these ideas, but it turns out that some of the people who have put the most thought into voting think that if we make voting more accessible, we could actually reduce the number of people who vote. On its face, I thought that was ridiculous. But let's explore voting accessibility and this critique before rejecting it. We don't have a lot of data on internet voting in the United States. What we do have is data on the accessibility of voting and how it correlates to the percentage of people who vote. The U.S. Census Bureau compiled reasons that people didn't vote for the 2012 presidential election, which were as follows. 14% of people said they couldn't vote because they were either ill or disabled. Another 8.6% of people didn't vote because they were out of town. 18.9% said they were too busy or had a scheduling conflict. 3.3% said they couldn't get to the polls for lack of transportation. 5.5% said they had problems with registration. 0.8% didn't vote because of the weather, and 2.7% of people didn't vote because their polling locations were inconvenient. There were other reasons people gave for not voting, including not liking the candidates or just not being interested in elections generally. But all of the reasons I listed above seem like they fall into the broad category of the process of voting being too difficult. Or put differently, the voting process is not accessible enough. For that reason, I would think that internet voting would have significantly changed the likelihood of this entire lot of people participating in the election. There is ample evidence to suggest that same-day voter registration results in higher voter turnout. When you compare states with same-day voter registration to states without same-day voter registration, there can be an observed difference of up to 10 percentage points in the total turnout. It's currently offered by 14 states. As of November 2016, three states had approved it without yet implementing it. On average, in the states where same-day voter registration is implemented, it increases voter turnout by 4%. Again, we have another instance of where ease to vote translates to a greater percentage of people who vote. So far, so good. But when many academics consider voting accessibility and the opportunity for internet voting, they think the greatest analog to the accessibility offered by internet voting is the accessibility of voting by mail. You would think that if you could vote by mail, it would always be more convenient than having to physically go to a polling station and wait on a line. 
And therefore, you would think that all states offering voting by mail would see higher voter turnout as a result. But the results haven't always been so clear. A study from the University of Wisconsin said that early voting, or voting by mail, can actually have the effect of reducing voter turnout. They attributed this to two reasons. One, early voting can change the dynamic of voting by reducing its stimulating effects, thereby reducing the social pressure to vote and giving campaigns less reasons to motivate their supporters and get them to the polls. The second reason is that early voting laws also seem to affect political campaigns themselves, in that both sides have been shown to reduce their efforts to mobilize voters. In the Wisconsin study, they examined patterns of media advertising in early voting states versus states that didn't offer it, and found that both the volume of ad sales and the ramp up before election day were lower in the early voting states. Some feel that the cumbersome experience of voting by mail is responsible for the effects on voter turnout. Antonio Mugica, CEO of London-based online voting solution company Smartmatic, said that user experience was the factor that made voting by mail unappealing in spite of its convenience. One of the reasons is voters don't like it and hate it. I mean, if you ask to any voter, you know, do they like to have to you know, receive a, a, a paper ballot by mail or to have to download it from some website and print it and then fill it up and then put it on an envelope and then have to mail it back. The truth is that whole user experience sucks. But you're saying that user experience translates to worse accessibility or is, is more difficult than me getting in my car or getting on a subway or walking and standing online? I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a, this is a question of, of relative experiences. Right, right. But again, the measures, I mean, the, the, every time that we have interviewed voters about their experience with vote by mail is they don't like it. They don't trust it. If you look at statistics also of how many people that are eligible to vote by mail actually vote, they're extremely low. In a study that covered all 50 states over a period of 30 years, Mary Fitzgerald determined that alternative voting methods such as absentee voting, in-person early voting, and voting by mail didn't necessarily lead to higher turnout. Thad Hall commented on this phenomenon and how it can manifest itself with electoral reform measures. If we look at by mail voting or uh, election reforms in general, uh, there's something referred to as the perverse consequences of electoral reform, which is that um, the more I make it easy to vote, the more I make it easy for people who are already going to vote to vote. So for instance, if I'm a very avid Republican or I'm a very avid Democrat, I'm going to vote regardless. Um, and I know who I'm going to vote for a long time before the election. I'm just ready to go vote. Well, what's the, perver what's the perverse con consequence of that? Well, the perverse consequence is the easier I make it to vote, uh, the more I just make it easy for people who are already going to vote, who are politically engaged to vote. It's pretty rare to, for it to make uh, it easy for everybody to vote. So, for instance, one of the biggest reforms that's actually been shown to make it easy to work uh, to vote is to move polling places to large facilities with great parking who, that are along major thoroughfares. So there is evidence from some experiments that were done in Colorado, for instance, where if you move polling places to, uh, for instance, like an empty shopping center where there used to be a Best Buy, where there's lots of parking, a big space to vote, um, and it's right along a transit corridor. If you put polling places there, people are more likely to vote, especially if you have early voting and you let people vote in the week or two prior to the election. 
I was curious to research voting by mail because so many people consider it the best analog to the potential benefits of voting over the internet. Academics who have favored this analogy are discouraged by the promise of internet voting in part because they think an extended period of time for voting diminishes the intensity on the election. But isn't that easily solved? If, and I know it's a big if here, voting over the internet were secure, we'll get into that in subsequent episodes of this series, couldn't we solve the intensity issue by allowing internet voting on one day and not over a period of weeks that voting by mail is offered over? Unfortunately, there's not empirical data in the United States to prove that internet voting would increase voter turnout. But there's an abundance of data that says increasing convenience with more or better located polling stations, transportation, and same-day registration substantially increases voter turnout. I started this podcast with the question, can online voting fix low voter turnout in the United States? I still suspect the answer is yes, although I had frankly hoped to find data to support my argument. Still, before we can say internet voting is a good idea, we need to examine the security issues associated with it. Can we do this safely? Will the Russians be hacking the next election if everyone can vote online? Tune in to the next episode in this series on the future of online voting, where I'll explore whether the benefits outweigh the risks and examine some of the places where internet voting is already being implemented. If you'd like to learn more about the people and companies featured in this podcast, Go to predictingourfuture.com to access the full list of participants and make sure to subscribe so that you don't miss an episode. This is Predicting Our Future.